freedom from the love of money. So who thinks that talking about money is weird? Who thinks that talking about money at church is weird? Well, hello. My name is Spencer, and I also feel weird about talking about money at church. And yet here we are at church talking about money. Well, the love of money. To make things a little less weird, here is a disclaimer before I begin. I don't get paid by the church. I know nothing of the church's finances. This sermon was not meant to guilt you into giving to the church. We did offering before this so that you don't feel obligated either, and I actually asked for this topic. This does not mean that you shouldn't listen to Mike or Tim talk about money or give to the church. Both are good. This is mostly just to make it a little less weird for me. So why is talking about money so weird? Well, it's personal. No one likes being told what to do with their money. We spend much of our time earning, spending, and saving it, and we're also very different. We have different numbers, paychecks, bank accounts, debt, investments, credit scores, and more than that, we have different stories behind those numbers. Struggles, successes, mistakes, luck, hard work, and with all of those differences, finding common ground for discussion is, well, kind of weird. So why talk about money if it's so weird? For one, it's all over the Bible. There are roughly 500 verses on prayer and faith, but over 2,000 on money. And over a third of Jesus' parables deal with money. So why talk about the love of money as part of the Freedom Series? Well, selfishly, when I heard about the Freedom Series, one of the things I most wanted to be free from was the love of money. I check my stocks when I should be working. I can watch personal finance videos for hours on end. I judge other people's purchases, including that one time that I criticized my mother for buying shoes for my sister. She won't let me forget that one. I'm stingy to a fault, and I seek comfort and validation in graphs that go up and to the right. The love of money literally gets me out of bed. Sometimes I tell my roommate Bradford that he can have a dollar if I don't get up with my first alarm. Unfortunately for him, it works every single time. So other than that getting out of bed thing, I don't think I'm alone, especially for those of us in the Bay Area. It's one of the wealthiest places on the planet. Yet our time, energy, and conversation seem to be controlled by money. So two rules before we begin. Listen to scripture. Clearly, I don't have it all figured out, as I said before. I need this probably more than you do. And my experiences as a new grad working in tech are probably different than yours. But what God has said in his scripture will always be true. And he knows you way better than I could. So listen to what he has to say. Second, listen for yourself, not someone else. We all have problems with money. People with mega yachts, your friends, your family, your spouse. But today, God has something to say to you about yo problems. They can watch the recording. So there's a lot of Bible verses about money. My initial list of scripture references took over an hour to read alone. Luckily, I cut it down. This message is simple. I can sum it up in one verse. Hebrews 13.5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And with any good sermon, just turn your text into three points. First, keep your lives free from the love of money. Second, be content with what you have. Third, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's a simple message. A warning, beware the love of money. The solution, be content. The third, 
Why? Why can we be content? Because we have God and he is enough. So, the warning. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. The context, before we dive in, a letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his spiritual son, instructing him practically and theologically how to guide the church in Ephesus. Near the end of the letter, Paul has a long warning about false teaching, especially around the love of money. Diving in, 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for the love of money, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Beware the love of money. It is the heart of the prosperity gospel. In verse 5, it talks about false teachers who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Right, these false teachers have been robbed of the truth themselves and are robbing others of the truth. They think that being godly, pleasing God, will earn them financial riches today. This is the root of one of the most pervasive and destructive false gospels preached at the beginning of the church and today in America and around the world. The prosperity gospel. What is the prosperity gospel? It is a gospel claiming freedom from sickness, poverty, and all suffering on the basis of Christ's death on the cross, promising material, physical, and visible blessings for all who would embrace it. The prosperity gospel insists that God's will is for all his children to prosper here and now. It's from a book called Prosperity? Okay, so if that is false, what is the truth? Move on to verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We'll come back to the passage when we talk about contentment. But the simple rebuttal to the prosperity gospel is being content in Jesus. The prosperity gospel says, be godly so that God will give you gain in this life. The true gospel says that we have already gained everything we need in Jesus and can therefore be content, free to live God-exalting lives. Godliness is the fruit of being in Christ, not the root of a blessed life. To say it again with pictures, godliness is the fruit of being in Christ, not the root of a blessed life. Beware the love of money. It is empty. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. The Pharaoh buried with hordes of treasure and the slave who died building the pyramid leave this world equally empty. Even the money in this life is empty. We're constantly bombarded with advertisements that say this or that will finally make you attractive or safe or valued or fulfilled. In general, the more you have, the happier you will be. 
even modern research in the field of happiness confirms this is not true. This hedonic treadmill basically explains why that joy of the new car smell fades and we soon want a newer and nicer car. Positive circumstances, like new purchases, offer only a small temporary bump in happiness, which, after which we return to our happiness baseline. So like a drug, we are driven to buy and pay for more and more to get the next hit that never lasts. But scripture has already told us this. Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves money is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Or Isaiah 55.2, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Money, wealth, and spending all promise satisfaction, yet continually and consistently fall short. Yet we keep running after them. Beware the love of money, it is costly. Verses 9 and 10. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Temptation, trap, foolish, harmful, ruin, destruction, evil, wandering from the faith, pierced. The love of money is not a sin without consequence. Paul did not write this in an abstract sense. They were real people that he knew who destroyed themselves. He came from the Pharisees who tithed even their herbs, yet will go down in history as dirty dishes, looking good on the outside, yet being filthy with greed and self-indulgence on the inside. The money changers and dove sellers in Matthew 21 had their tables destroyed by Jesus. They inspired him to become the original table flipper. The rich young ruler walked away from an offer to follow Jesus because he had a lot of stuff. Ananias and Sapphira lied about giving to the early church and fell down dead. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 coins. And then he threw it away and hung himself. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Beware the love of money. It is buried Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. First, notice what this passage is not saying. The passage doesn't say that money is evil. Money is a tool that the people of God have been using for a long time to do good. The passage also doesn't say that the love of money is the root of all evil. No, sin is the root of all evil. But what the passage does say is this, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. In other words, the love of money is buried at the root of many evils and sins. In everything from lying to wars, the love of money is not the only cause, but it is often a cause. If we pull out some of the weeds of sin in scripture in our own lives, we can often see some form of the love of money at the root. I'll point out three examples, but there are many more. First, in the parable of the vineyard workers, we see a bunch of workers who were hired at different times in the day. But when it got time to be paid, they all received the same wage. The envy and jealousy that the people hired first felt was at its root, the love of money, where money defined their worth. In Matthew 20, 12, these who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. 
because they put their worth in and what they got paid, and they were comparing themselves to others, it became a personal offense and unfair that they were paid what they actually agreed to at the beginning of the day. How often is our pride, our envy, our jealousy, because we view money as a measure of our personal worth and compare ourselves to others? When have you been envious of someone's or God's generosity with someone else? Example two, Judas complains and judges Mary's anointing Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. But really, that just revealed his own love of money. He accused Mary of essentially stealing from the poor that when he himself was a thief. John 12, 5, 6, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He, Judas, did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Buried underneath Judas's complaint and judgment was his own thievery. As I mentioned at the beginning, I complained, judged my mother's purchase of some shoes for my sister back in the day. But buried underneath my criticism was my own love of money that missed my mom showing love to my sister and saw my own stingy idolatry of money instead. Often our own criticism of others' use of money comes from our own skewed love of money. We see the penny in someone else's eye and miss the dollar bill stuck in our own. Example three, Ananias and Sapphira. Now this is a difficult story, but basically the early church was going great. People were being very generous and sharing with one another. But then comes along this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a field and give some of the money to the apostles to distribute. That sounds great, right? Well, except for the fact that they lied about giving the whole amount. They kept back some for themselves, which is okay, but they lied about it. Peter confronts each of them individually, and they each maintain this lie and fall down dead. Seems pretty intense at first glance, but at the root of the seemingly insignificant lie, we see the love of money rear its head in two ways. They lied because they wanted to use money to elevate themselves in the church. At the end of Acts 4, before this, someone does something similar and gets the nickname Barnabas, or son of encouragement, for selling a field and giving the money to the poor. So maybe they thought that they wouldn't get cool nicknames for only giving part of the money. Second, they lied because they trusted money more than the relationship with God and the church. Why not give it all like they said that they did? Well, maybe they thought that they wouldn't have enough and didn't trust God and or others in the early church to provide for them as they were lying about doing. The buried nature of the love of money was all throughout the Jewish religious elite at the time of the Pharisees. And so at the start of this new church, this event around which on the surface looks like a small lie, it reveals the destructive nature of the love of money that's buried at the heart. There is a reason why auditors exist. Problems with money are especially hard to find and easy to hide. So you hire some unlucky souls to check over your entire business to find these problems. When was the last time that you audited your life for the love of money? Beware the love of money. It is common. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Jesus says it similarly, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. 
what is the sum of your life? What is your net worth? Is it defined by an equation, assets minus liabilities, or is it in an eternal relationship with God who loves you? We can see this struggle even in children to define themselves by either their stuff or their relationships. And at least from what I hear from parents, is one of the first words along with mommy or daddy is mine. Mine. The love of money is focusing on mine instead of daddy. Back to Hebrews 13:5. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The why. Don't worry. I know. We'll go back to point two on being content. But like a good math teacher, I'll first explain the why before we get to the solution. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Have you ever wept over a time that you messed up? When your sin was laid bare and you couldn't hide from it anymore? Well, for me, there's two times I can remember. The first, speaking of how we see our sinful nature, even in children, was when I was caught telling a dirty joke to some other children. My parents found out, confronted me at the dinner table. This was a very shocking moment for, for me, who grew up as this little golden child, and I was pretty distraught, which is evidenced by the fact that I remember this and pretty much not much else from my childhood. And my parents, the wise parents that they are, encouraged me to pray to God for forgiveness which I did through sobs and tears. The second time was a couple weeks ago when I was working on this sermon before work one day and God brought a scripture to mind. Luke 23, 32 to 34. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. One on his right, other on his left. Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. So imagine with me for a moment that that's your child up on the cross. You're watching the guard who beat, stripped, and drove nails into their hands. He's sitting close enough to make sure that no one tries to take them down, but far enough away to avoid the blood dripping off their feet. And what is he doing now? He's gambling in the dirt for the clothes that they stripped off of their back. Now, how much wrath do you have in that moment? And that's just an infinitesimal fraction of the wrath that the father had. And what God said to me as I remember this, you are that man. Spencer, you sit at Jesus' feet. Your sin is why he was beaten, stripped, and nailed as much as you did it yourself. And you are so absorbed by his clothes, some pieces of cloth, stocks and bills, that you miss the meaning of the man dying for you. And I understood for a brief moment how disgusting and pointless the love of money was in my life. And I'm worse than the soldier because I know the significance of the cross. And yet I so often turn to my stocks, my net worth, my possessions in pursuit of more instead of the one who gave his life for me. But despite all that, Jesus, he looks down and says, forgive him. And so I wept, not because of guilt, but because of gratitude for the incredible riches of grace that I did not deserve. And so if you don't know this God, whose promises are true and unfailing, who sent his son to die for those very sins that nailed him to the cross, 
who was raised on the third day and intercedes for us in heaven, this God is true and worthy of praise, unlike the God of money, whose promises are fickle and will abandon you suddenly. If you don't know this God, the God of the Bible, who is just to destroy us, yet incredibly rich in grace, mercy, and forgiveness, I would encourage you to read his word that he gave us and talk to someone about him. And those of you like me who submit to this God, why waste our time desiring after earthly riches when we are already rich? Second Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Christ became poor, dying naked upon a Roman cross. And no matter how much of your life, your time, your money you have gambled away, if you come to him, Jesus will pay your debts out of his immeasurable riches of grace. The father no longer sees the sinner with bloody hands gambling at the foot of the cross, but the son who asks for their forgiveness. So why can we be content with what we have? Because we have Jesus, and he is more than enough. Point two, the solution. Be content with what you have. You might be thinking, okay, that's great. But the reality of my life is I still need to work and get paid and buy food for me and my family. So what the heck does it mean for me to be content with what I have? What does that look like? Honestly, I don't really know. I'm still figuring this out for myself with the Lord, but I can give us a couple scriptures to start with. So going to the beginning of Hebrews 13, starting verse 1, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Those who are content love their neighbors as themselves. Through hospitality, they open their homes and lives to strangers. They see and feel the needs and suffering of those around them, and most of all, they're motivated by love for shown on the cross. Think of the Good Samaritan, who is not so caught up in his own agenda that he was content to take the time and money to love the man beaten on the side of the road. Later on in Hebrews 13, verse 15 and 16. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Those who are content with what they have worship. As Laura and Malik talked about a few weeks ago, worship is a whole life activity. They worship with their mouth, singing praises and thanksgiving, rooted in what Jesus has done. They worship with their hands, doing good, not so that they will receive good, but because they are loved by a good God. They worship with their stuff, sharing it with others. Going back to 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 and 11, but godliness with contentment is great gain, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Those who are content pursue godly character instead of worldly wealth. They realize the value of righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. They bear much fruit. First Timothy 6, 7 to 8, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who are content, recognize that the things of this world are temporary. 
And those who are content are satisfied with food and clothing, with the basics, with daily bread. The Israelites relied on God in the desert. Jesus taught us to pray for it, calling us to realize that even the food that we eat and the clothes that we wear are something to be thankful for and a gift from God. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Those who are content are not arrogant but humble. They tie neither their own self-worth or the self-worth of others to what they own. They understand that this world is momentary and so is wealth. And my favorite, those who are content can enjoy. We're not called to asceticism and to renounce owning anything. Rather, our security and status are in Christ instead of our possessions. And when you're not clinging to your stuff, you're actually much more free to enjoy it, part of which is the joy of giving it away. Ecclesiastes 5.19 says something similar. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. So not only is what we have a gift from God, but also our ability to enjoy our work. Back to 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Last but not least, contentment is taking hold of life that is truly life. We all spend our lives building something. Are you building up a mansion for yourself out on the sand? Or are you building onto something that will stand? No leaky faucets, no caving roofs, no fading paint, because it's on the one firm foundation, Jesus Christ. Don't waste your life on yourself, Spencer. Do good deeds, be generous, share sacrificially from the riches that you have been entrusted. Be content to build something true the next step. So today we just scratched the surface of the wealth of what scripture has to say about money. Freedom from the love of money is a journey that I am just beginning. And wherever you are on that journey, a great next step is to dive into what scripture has to say about it. To help you out, I created some handouts, or I guess below in the description, uh, where there's 14 Bible passages. I would encourage you to read and pray over them, talk to someone about them, and at the end of two weeks or whenever you finish, just write down one thing that God wants you to do differently and have someone keep you accountable. And as a bonus, my friend Daniel sent me some Christian rap about freedom from the love of money. That's also on there. So to close, I just want to read two passages that I think uh, give us a good target for a healthy mindset on the love of money. The first is Proverbs 37 to 9. Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. The second, Philippians 4, 11 to 13. 
This is Paul. I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every, in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Heavenly Father, Lord, just thank you that we can be free from the love of money. Lord, I pray that through your power, through the cross, Lord, through just knowing who you are, that we would be content with what we have. And that would just overflow into generosity and enjoyment, Lord. Lord, give us strength to do this. We praise you. You, you're so good. In your holy and beautiful name, amen.